Hello and welcome to another GetDropped.com podcast. I'm Jonathan McCready. With me is Andrew McKinstry, and we are going to discuss the 2023 MS Supercross season. And it ended pretty spectacularly, but in a way slightly disappointing with the fact that it was a three-rider fight for the championship. And by the end, there was only one rider left standing, and that rider is Chase Sexton. You could say he deserved it on speed, but for Cooper Webb and Eli Tomac, this is going to be a particularly tough championship to look back on in their careers. Absolutely. I mean, Supercross this year for... 14 out of the 17 rounds was very, very exciting. And even the last three rounds, they were exciting, for, but for the wrong reasons, you would probably say. Uh, you would have liked to see all the three contenders stay fit until the end of the season. Who knows what way it would have went. But uh, the way it went, as you said, last man standing, Chase Saxon. I think we do have to give him credit because, you know, racing these days, championships are so long. The first point is to stay injury-free. Obviously, the other two had freak incidents, I would say. But he was able to stay injury-free. And even though he threw a couple of wins away earlier in the season, he was there at the end of the season to pick up the pieces. So congratulations to him on his first 450 Supercross title. And who knows, there could be many more to come from. And just looking at the the facts here, season wins for Chase Saxon was six, Eli Tomac seven. Now, obviously, Eli could argue he was out front in Denver. He maybe would have won that race. But laps led 124 for Saxon, 97 for Tomac. So speed-wise, I think Chase can lay claim to that he was the best or at least the fastest. Maybe the best was Eli because when he could win, he won. He didn't make that many mistakes, a couple here and there. But it looked like at that point he was managing the championship. And for Cooper Webb, he only won two races and he actually only led 12 laps. But until that crash, he was very much in it as well. But the... The last four rounds or so from the, the mud race, everything seemed to ebb and flow in extreme terms from then because if you remember, Chase actually had the start and Justin put him down in that main event, Justin Barsha. Previous to that in the in the practice, Eli Tomek had went down and you wondered if he was going to even be able to race and if he was able to race, how fit would he be? At that point, the door seemed very much open for Webb and Sexton. When Sexton got the whole shot, it looked like Saxon was going to be back in this championship and make a lot of points. In the end, he got put down by Varsha. Tomac got on the podium. He created that 11-point gap to Cooper Webb. And I think that was part of the reason Webb was so aggressive with Eli in the heat race. Because one corner, the second turn essentially in the heat race, he decided to try and rattle Tomac by going in for that aggressive pass. That created Webb to go wide in the next corner because he thought Tomac was going to give him some payback. That's when his front wheel went over the berm, and then he ended up getting hit by Adam Cincerello, who couldn't do anything about it. So that was way about. Pretty unfortunate, but I think the circumstances of the mud race created a scenario in Webb's head where he felt he had to put pressure on Eli even in the heat race, because his practice times and everything hadn't been that good. His race speed hadn't been that good in terms of Cooper Webb, and he tried to make something happen there, and it backfired but it didn't so much backfire because of, he crashed in the heat race it backfired obviously because of the unlucky situation with Adam that came from the crash so that was web out from there it looked like Eli had this thing under control I mean you're leading at home you're in Denver Colorado you've all but sealed the title you basically just have to not get hurt and then to get injured in that way which was a freak way to get injured it's a Kelly snapping on a fairly 
bog standard for his level rhythm section. And you could see the pain straight away. The, the foot came straight off the foot rest. He knew and drove, rode straight back, explained that he couldn't push his bike back through the tunnel. And if that's the end of his career, it has to be one of the most staggering ways for a legend of the sport and one of the best riders of all time, one of the best American riders ever, to leave the sport on the brink of his third title. It's it's something I think that will stay with fans of the sport forever, or at least until they die. Yeah, absolutely. Unbelievable way for the champ for the championship to end, really. And it just goes to show it's never over until it's mathematically over. And if you're second or third in the championship and you still have a chance, it's never over until you get that, you know, until you're celebrating and you're mathematically have won that championship. And that just proves it. In terms of Eli now, obviously he's, I don't think he's going to make a decision just yet, but probably five or six weeks when he's dealing with this um injury and and probably starting to think, what's the future going to hold for him? He's got a, basically two decisions to make. Is he happy, you know, achieving so much he has in the sport to leave now? And that's, and that's his last memory. If he can get over that, it could be the last time we'll maybe see him race. But if he, if he doesn't want to go out like that, who knows? We could see him back. But whether he can make it back for January after such a big injury, who knows? Because, I mean, even in football, Achilles, you're out for, yeah. out for about a year. So... It's all the pieces will have to fall together from the to, to, to make a recovery. But yeah, as a fan of the sport and somebody that loves the sport, ho- hopefully we can see it back in action. And, and of course, it puts a dampener in the AMA outdoors as well because everyone was so excited to see Eli and Chet go at it as well. And obviously, Chase. Yeah, it's sort of thrown a spanner in, in every series, really. The end of the Supercross series was own even for the Honda guys, you know, Chase on the team didn't really celebrate it that much in Denver. I think A through shock and B through respect for Eli because you don't really want to win it that way. Although if it's given to you, you're gonna take it, but it's still not the ideal way to do it. Chase has made a few mistakes of his own and ironically at that time he seemed to have sorted everything out. He had the speed, he wasn't making those crashes. He said he'd made adjustments to the front end of the bike with suspension. And he seemed to be on his A game, but by the time he got there, Eli was able to kind of pick and choose his battle. So it was just unfortunate to see that. I think it's something that'll be burned in most people's brains. Eli's exit from the the championship, with three championships, probably at least a million dollars in prize money. At least he did get that legacy of um, second in the Supercross series, all-time winners. So when he looks back, it was I'm sure it was still worth his while racing this season. There was talk he was going to retire before that, but he's extended his career to that level, but to be so close to that third title, it's, it's got a sting. And again, outdoors, he wasn't supposed to do it at all. He put his name in the hat for that again. And then, as you say, we're not going to get sort of to see the battle of the, the new generation, the old generation with Jet Lawrence and Eli Tomac. Obviously, Dylan Ferrandis and Chase Sexton are going to be very, very fast as well, but that that was Jet's probably one chance to race Eli, and uh, it's, it's not going to happen now. Although he did get to race him at Designations Final Moto, but Eli didn't get to start that race, so we didn't get to see the the duel really. But for Jet and for the fans, it's it's disappointing, but obviously not any more disappointing than it is for Eli Tomac. You could see him shaking his head there, and I think everyone was shaking their head. It was disbelief, really, whatever you've seen it. Even the commentators <laughs> barely knew what to say. I know, um, unbelievable way for it all the all day and literally. But um, yeah, just don't use sex. And obviously, it's not the way you want to win the title. But you know, I think this will help help him stay motivated and, and keep motivated because 
obviously he won this title and while he would have preferred to have won it with, you know, all his two main rivals, Sten and Drifree, and, and winning it that way, I think the motivation now, looking forward, he, he can tick that one off. He say he, he can say he's won a 450 Supercross title now, but the motivation now will be to, to win another one when hopefully all his rivals stay injury-free. And, and then I'm, I'm sure that would maybe even mean more to him than maybe his first one, because looking back, like, obviously he, no one can take that away from him. He thoroughly deserved it, but he'll know looking back, you know, the story behind the season and obviously next year we're going to have Jet and him probably going out of chase probably going to be with a different manufacturer most likely going to KTM so he'll probably want to uh, give KTM a, a Supercross title and try and do two in a row whether or not he can do it it's going to be very very difficult but who knows because he as, as you've highlighted, highlighted earlier with the stats I don't think there's any question that he was probably the quickest this year. If you look at yeah. the whole season, he just threw it down the track a few times. And if he hadn't done that, then he would have put himself in a situation where he might have yeah, yeah. actually been able to win the title anyway. So, But he's still young and he just needs to learn from those mistakes. And he's got a bright future ahead of him, for sure, even with Jet moving up. And to win a title with Honda, at least for my era growing up, it's pretty significant. It's probably the most glamorous team to win a Supercross title with. They've been waiting for 20 years. Ricky Carmichael, amazingly, in 03, I think it was, was the last guy to, to win a title with Honda. Before that, it was Jeremy McGrath, Jean-Michel Bale, Jeff Stanton, Rick Johnson, David Bailey, Johnny O'Mara. So you've, you've gone with a who's who of Supercross legends. And for Chase to have his name attached to that brand as a Supercross winner has been pretty spectacular and end the, the losing streak, as it were. Along with that, for Honda, you have the Lawrence brothers both winning their titles. And to go 20 years without a Premier Supercross Championship to then win all three in one season, it was almost like the, the long wait was worth it for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like you said, there, it's been a while, but now they've, they've won one with Chase and with the Lawrence brothers coming up, they'll be looking for plenty more. And there's no reason why they can't do it. Obviously, starting with this outdoor championship, obviously that's not the, the main goal in America, as Supercross is, but if uh, Chet can start off or even running at the front of the that uh, MA Nationals, it'll, it'll make him feel confident and feeling good heading into the, the 2024 Supercross season. And Certainly, he's got the speed, there's no doubt about that, if he can keep it on two wheels and be consistent throughout the whole season. Who knows, Honda, maybe not, uh, Jackson might not be able to make it two in a row, but Honda might be able to. Yeah, it's going to be, you'd imagine it, 66% chance if you include Dylan Ferrandes as the third guy that maybe could win that title. Jet and Chase are probably the two favourites. You have Hunter favourite in the 250s, I would imagine, probably over Cooper and maybe Tom Vial, although it depends where his confidence is and bike setup is going into a new series after Supercross. But certainly Honda have the prospect of going 1-2 in the 450s and coming away with a 250 national title again, which I think would be the third in a row with Jetman in the previous two. So Honda are on a roll. As you mentioned, it looks like they might actually be losing Chase. So if he goes to KTM, KTM have somehow come up smelling smelling of roses with Cooper getting injured. He looks likely to move to Yamaha, potentially. And Chase has ended up, ironically, he's going to could be wearing the number one plate on a KTM in 2024 which for KTM is quite a strange situation to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, silly season. That's, that's the way these things go. But I think we've known for quite a while now that, that this decision was made between KTM and Saxon. So we just need something official now. Probably probably come after the 
probably after his Honda contract runs out. So we'll probably still have to wait a while on it being official. But yeah, KTM were on the ball quickly there with Saxon. And obviously Honda probably decided to, to focus on the Lawrence brothers for their future. At the time, you'd probably say a right decision. But with Chase being so good at Supercross this season, obviously, the, the even if Chad is amazing, the, the will miss him in some capacity. Is both of them under the same awning would have been amazing. Would have been really good. But both of them title contenders and that you always don't see two title contenders with yeah. the same brand. So it's it's understandable. And that's what it'll make it a, probably salary-wise too, <laughs> the amount Jet will be getting. The other interesting thing that we've ended, well, Jet will actually be going against Chase, obviously, as teammates this summer, but we'll probably not get to see that in Supercross next year. The thing we did miss out with Eli getting injured as well was the fact that Jet admitted that he and Hunter were going to ride at 250 in the 450 class at the last round to try and put bikes between them Team Honda essentially and Eli Tomac if the situation presented itself that actually would have been pretty cool to see because if you look at the lap times of the Jets actually being the quickest in terms of overall laps of the 450s the odd time and pace wise with the amount of injured factory riders there was no reason Jet or Hunter couldn't have been challenged for a podium yeah, well, we'll never know now after that never materialised. But yeah, whether they would have wanted to get involved or not, like, is another story. I mean, obviously, they would they probably would have been told to race. It would have been probably Honda pushing it. Um, obviously, Jet's capable, but, you know, one lap around the Supercross sack and, and a full main is completely different. But as you say, with the lack of depth there at the, main, at the last round, especially with so many injuries, probably would have been knocking on the door. But whether they would have wanted to get involved in the championship battle is another thing. But... Yeah, that's that's just the way it goes. Obviously, we'll, we'll not have to wait long to see Jed on a 450 with the outdoors, and Hunter could potentially be joining him for the Supercross 2024 season. So not long to wait before we see them in the Premier class. On the injuries, there's been a lot of talk about both MXGP and Supercross with the injuries this year, but specifically Supercross. There's been talk that there's too many races, the 450s are too fast. I think there might be an issue with the 450s, but if you look at... Even Ken Rockson, that Adam Bailey were Supercross, and every British, German, and French, Australian, and Singaporean fan holding their breath whenever he hurt his knee at the last round. Look, luckily, it looks like he'll be okay for World Supercross, but we Coat Nichols injured at times as well. But Eli Tomac's injury was pretty freak. Cooper Webb had a simple crash that he was fine with, he got run into. So the two main contenders there, and even Maxime Renault in MXGP, he got hurt without crash, and he just put his foot down. Jeffrey's got hurt without crashing before with his foot injury. Are the injuries been over too much made of these injuries? Is it just a freak year? Because I remember in 03, I think there was only three or four factory riders as well. And that was with Chad Ray and Ricky Carmichael riding 250s. I think Ferry and maybe Fonseca made the whole season. So it does seem to fluctuate. You're always going to get injuries. But some of them are just freak injuries, while others are major. We've seen Dylan Ferrandes have a couple of big crashes. But what are your thoughts on whether the bikes are too quick, the tracks need to change, or is it just a freak year? Yeah, I mean, for me, the bikes are definitely too fast for me. I've been saying that for a while now, and, and mm -hmm. I definitely agree with that. But, you know, we're living in a world where we're never going to be able to slow them down. That's just the reality. The manufacturers don't want to slow them down. I think, actually, that has been a discussion, but the manufacturers are keen to, to keep improving and, and trying to get quicker, so... Yeah, that's that's just not going to happen, I'm afraid. But obviously, once things go all electric, that'll be another discussion and what, what way the future goes. Who knows? Um, on the tracks, 
you know, it's a funny one. A lot of people blame the MXGP qualifying races because Fever and Renault both got injured in that race. As we found out after, Renault didn't even crash. And Fever was just unlucky, a start crash. Obviously, that can happen in any sort of race. But um, it was quite happy, or it was quite funny to see during the week Rick Elzing and Simon Lagenfelder both picking yeah, up injuries practice. at the practice track. So yeah. it just goes to show, I think it's pretty lazy just to blame qualifying races. And for people that saying that they're literally pointless this year, well, actually, they're not because the top 10 get points. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where they're coming from there. And everyone likes to see racing. Um, Supercross. Yeah, I would sort of like there's a lot of dragging back and a lot of a lot of technicality at tracks these days. So potentially that might be a factor, you know, back in the early two thousands, maybe yeah. a lot of the a lot of the tracks were maybe some of them were maybe like outdoor motocross tracks as opposed to everything being so super crossy and so jumpy. So potentially I would like maybe a, a few a few tracks like that and maybe a few more tracks like Daytona would be nice. But yeah, um it's just part of the sport, I'm afraid. And the sport that nobody likes injuries, but it's always going to happen. That's just the way I it think is. Uh, maybe I was after three, but those early 2000s had massive whoops, and obviously everyone's on the 250, so is the 250 safer or build a bog with the carburetor? But I think that almost made the tracks a bit easier for the end of the 2000s. It started, I remember McGrath and Wyndham, I think it was 01-ish, 2000. The whoops were pretty ridiculous, so maybe there is a balance between you hear the top riders wanting technical tracks, but it tends to spread the racing out, although there's more opportunity to pass. But you don't want, like, like a Barsha's crash, miss time to drag him back and end of face first and next jump and all multiple injuries. It's gonna, if it doesn't rule him out of outdoors at the start of the season, it's going to hinder his speed that he would have had at the start of the season. So it, it impacts him negatively on this series either way. So I think there are things that can do, but I still think there was a certain amount of Break injuries as well. I mean, Eli and Cooper, they're getting the most, and Roxon to an extent are three of the top five in the championship, all injured at one point this season, but on Barsha, but really, bar Barsha's one, the other three were pretty unlucky. Yeah, Roxon exactly. Just I mean, stuck, his, stuck his foot out wrong, you know, on this knee yeah. pin. So I think there's a balance to all these things. The other interesting thing we were just reading there was Chase Saxon. Style and technique, certainly one of the best styles and technique ever seen in the sport and, and probably up there. But Opa Max were talking about how good his style was and is it the best ever? I would say it's one of the best ever, but AJ Catanzaro said that Stefan Everett's style and technique wasn't even close to Chase Sexton. I think he said the same for McGrath. And I would completely disagree with that because McGrath set the standard for Supercross with precision staying low over the jumps and Stefan Everett set the standard for motocross and for me America are just now catching up to Stefan's techniques that he's been doing throughout his whole career in the 90s and early 2000s I feel like they're just seeing it the GP guys took that on from what Stefan left the likes of Roxon, the likes of Jorge Prado so many GP riders stand up laid into the corners on the pegs with great balance riding the balls of their feet that all came from Stefan Everts. And ironically, he looked at Johnny O'Mara and David Bailey, who had great technique in the 80s. McGrath and I had great technique in the 90s. But if you look at the guys that are winning championships now, you have Saxon, who to me looks like a GP rider the way he rides. I don't think that's a coincidence because he's grown up in the era where GP guys have moved to America and MXGP's got a lot more exposure. 
Jeffrey doesn't have that smooth technical style, but whenever you look the way he rides feet on the pegs, the corner speed, the momentum he carries through a turn, that's very GPS. He throws a bit more aggression into it, which is maybe a bit of an American compromise. But Jet Lawrence, Hunter Lawrence, Jorge Prado, all at one time or other coached by Harry Everts. Liam Everts, great technique, coached by Harry with Stefan. Stefan coached by Harry. So there's the thread of GP riders coaching and examples through the sheer brilliance of Stefan Everts' technique has actually came to America, but has came to America late. And I said they seem to think that the new technique, which is actually an old technique from MXGP, is is the future, which is quite ironic. Um, but Chase certainly in style is fantastic to watch. But I would say Jet looks to me really like Stefan Everts. Obviously, there's certain subtleties of change because of the bikes and everything now. And 2023 isn't 1990 or even 2006. But Everts' technique was good enough to beat Prime James Stewart. So I don't think the techniques changed that much from then. And the basic of everything is still Stefan Everts techniques. If you watch a video from 1990 or 92, his technique was perfect then for motocross. Jeremy's was perfect for supercross. And I think Chase has just put his version of that to me. He's a wee bit like, if you combine Kevin Windham and Stefan Everts, you probably have Chase Saxon because he rides with his elbows a bit lower like Windham. He can be smooth, but he also has that standing up late into the turns momentum that Stefan basically created in terms of MXGP racing as well. So he has one of the best styles, but I mean, Yvonne Tonis, great style. Joe Shimoda admitted that his dad got him to watch Stefan and he's a modern rider. So I think the Stefan Everts thread is very heavily entered American motocross that maybe just haven't, haven't realized it yet. Yeah, I mean, just on Chase Saxon, I've actually really enjoyed watching Chase Saxon. I interviewed him after they actually won at Red Bull and I actually said to him, I actually quite like him watching you because when I'm watching you, I forget you're American sometimes because you ride like a GP rider. And, yeah. and like I asked him who he looked up to and he said he didn't really look up to anybody, but he tried to take a bit from, from everyone. And then obviously he's Chase Saxon at the end mm -hmm. of the day, so he's going to keep his style. But I think it is quite interesting that he used to work with James Stewart and obviously Chase like, likes standing up and that's his style. But I think obviously he ended up going away from that direction because I think James is maybe trying to get him to sit down a bit more. Now. Obvi more. Yeah, obviously in America, you know, that whenever we look at their motocross tracks, I, I understand why a lot of their riders don't ride with that technique because at those tracks, you know, they're very fast, you know, pin it, you know, and it, you kind of have to ride with a pin it to win it style. Whereas, you know, in Europe, they ride with this style because the tracks get gnarly and rough and, you know, mm -hmm. standing up and being on the pegs is... It's more efficient. It's the best way to ride these rough and naughty tracks. Maybe you won't be the most aggressive guy, but, you know, aggression doesn't really reward you in GPs. You need to yeah, be exactly. smart and pick your lines. In America, I think it's maybe hard to get that balance, but Chase Saxon has obviously made that work for him. And obviously he's very unlucky not to win the AMA Nationals title last year, but he took it right down the wire with Eli Tomac. So it's nice to see a top in American rider ride with that style. I personally enjoy watching it and and also he rides a little bit different to the other Americans, so it's 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 good to watch. Um one rider that I'm interested in seeing in the in the future is how how Deegan develops because yeah, if to me his style would be more of maybe an Eli Tomac style, but it'll be interesting to see in the future if he keeps that style or he tries to go more smooth as well. And I think he still has the basic 
techniques where you you know he can stand up he has the technique but obviously I think as you mentioned Chase he can still throw that American aggression in but he has the smooth technique as well from you would attribute to MXGP sort of style style racing and I think for Vial that's going to be not to go into an outdoor preview but for Vial he's trying to have a smooth technical GP style and then you'll maybe have to adapt some aggression into the outdoors for him and um, we've seen, I think I remember it's Lawrence's dad was saying the tracks like Washougal, he didn't really like as much. He wanted the tracks to get rough because that's when his boys' technique that they grew up learning in Australia and then laterally Europe with the sand really paid off compared to the Americans just pinning the throttle and holding on. But as you said, that's what worked for Rand Villapolo and Ricky Carmichael. And there were the legends then, and the tracks reward that in America more. So Chase has probably got the perfect compromise now for America, and you might see some of the GP guys having to become more aggressive. If Prado goes there, he might have to become more aggressive, even though his style is pretty much perfection, watching him ride a bike, very similar to Jet Lawrence. But Jet's had the time to develop that sort of balance. But again, the likes of Prado, when he goes to America, he might have to adjust even the aggressive racing over there with Supercross. We've seen he doesn't really like that bar-to-bar kind of action can disrupt his rhythm. But if you let him get out front, nobody can really catch him. So you have that sort of balance. But Chase certainly is one of the nicest and most technical riders to watch there's been. But I wouldn't say Stefan Everts isn't close and that Jeremy McGrath isn't close because I think they're the two base marks for supercross and motocross technique that every rider can still use and apply. And if you apply what they're doing and put your own spin on it, you're going to be at the front if you have the, the talent as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when it comes to Stefan Everts, he was very, very unique. Until Jorge Prado came along, there wasn't really a rider that rode like, like obviously in bits, but the way Everts was so unique, like he was always on the pegs. I mean, Prado's, apart from him, a lot of GP riders are a bit more like Saxon, or Saxon's a bit more yeah, like the GP riders. But, yeah. but in terms of the way Stefan rode, Prado... Until he came along, there was nobody really that, that took it to that level. Obviously, we've got Liam coming along and watching him get his first podium there the other week was at Narco. Can't remember the track now, but watching him was just like watching the, uh, a young uh, Stefan Everts as well, which is good to and see. He got it's his always first nice to see Arco, that style. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the symmetry was pretty awesome. Exactly. So yes, yeah, so you have a lot of guys coming up with that on the peg style and GPs. I think Deegan. I think he's one of the stands out of the 250 class. Obviously, Hunter Lawrence touching him quickly to finally get that title. Like, we have followed his career from GPs, the ups and downs of that, the potentially showing GPs. Then to almost have to take his last year in GPs was tough with the bike and everything. Injuries, he had more injuries in Supercross and outdoors, even though he won a couple of motos. Then Jet came into form. He kind of took the limelight away from Hunter. He was the main guy. And I think a lot of people forgot how good Hunter was and the potential he had. So to see him get that title, I think, is rewarding, not just for Hunter, the family in Honda in America and the fans there, but also everyone that's followed his career in GPs as well, because you feel you've, you've seen that journey from the start, really, and to see that come to fruition, that he'll always have that title now, and, and maybe too, coming here in the outdoors, was pretty nice to see as well. But for Jet, it looked like he was riding at about 80% all year. He's almost waiting to go to 450 to show the world his true potential. 
I know, absolutely. I mean, kudos to the family. I think they did things the right way, coming from Australia, selling everything they had in Australia, going as a whole family, going to Europe. Um, I think they were based in France a majority of the time, times Belgium as well. And then, you know, once they got the call to go to America, they sold everything in Europe, went to America and started there. I, th I think if you're coming from Australia, that's what you probably have to do. You have to just go, leave, and no matter what, I'm going to succeed and have that mindset that, you know, you're not going to go home to Australia until, you know, maybe you hang up the boots or whatever or visit at Christmas time. But uh, definitely done things the right way, and it's good to see all their hard work paying off now. Obviously, as soon as they came to Europe, we could see the potential they had. I remember Hunter Lawrence, first DMX 250 race, battling with Conrad Muse at Falcons War, and... I was pretty blown away by him that day. I thought he was going to be a future world champion. Obviously, that didn't quite happen, but he's went to America and, and him and Jet are dominating the 250 class in America. So congratulations to him. Fantastic career so far, but I'm sure they'll want more when they go to the 450. Plenty more wins. And that's the other thing I think's maybe come out of this 2023 Supercross season. It was the new generation led by Chase taking on the older generation with Tomac and Webb. It looked like until that Achilles snap that the older generation still had the edge, probably just on experience. Mm. But those last couple of rides, it almost sped up the transfer of power to the young generation. So instead of having Eli, we don't even have Eli now. We're straight into the jet chase era. And Hunter will probably be on a 450, if not on Supercross next year by outdoors. You would class him as that new era as well. Even Ken Roxon, which I cannot believe because it was there at his debut in Spain when he his GP debut at 15. He's now 29. So it looks like in the in a click of a fingers, the the new generation is already here and we're about to see a preview for that outdoors. Chase Sexton, Jet Lawrence could be here for the two guys battling for the next five years, it seems. And We've almost lost that extra wee bit that Eli Tomark was going to give us, and that straight away Cooper Webb will probably try to hang on as the older guy next year. But it looks like it's going to be Chase versus Jed, and we're we've almost fast forwarded into the new generation in about three weeks. <laughs> it's, I know, it's, it's, that quick. it's crazy how it all goes, how one injury can do that. But you know, them guys need to stay healthy as well, especially mm -hmm. in Supercross. As we were talking about injuries earlier, the thing about Supercross is it's all about time. And if you get one thing wrong, it can lead to a big injury. So, you know, you need to stay injury-free in this game to win your titles. And there'll always be somebody coming up and somebody knocking on the door trying to trying to get those wins and trying to challenge. So, you never know. You never know. So, But it was certainly an entertaining Supercross season, that's for sure. And I'm definitely looking forward to the outdoors now. Yeah, the ebbs and flow of the... Championship with those three guys was pretty good. Every time somebody looked like they got the momentum that wasn't he called Eli Tomac, Tomac would wrestle it back. And then just when it looked like he had it secured, his Achilles snapped and Tom Webb was already out and Chase was there to, to pick up the pieces. So if we can get more of that next year, it'll certainly be exciting. Just lastly, then we'll have to mention it. Jeffrey Herling is now the, the winningest, to coin an American phrase, MXGP rider ever. He's actually equal with Ricky Carmichael. We're making this before France, so he could actually even beat Ricky Carmichael's 102 outdoor wins, which would make him the guy that's won the most outdoor races of the elite level ever. He finally got it done. He had almost a year delay with, a, with the injury last year. Stefan still is the 10, and I don't think Jeffrey's going to race long enough to be able to get there unless he's able to pick five 
championships together in a row. But I think in a way it maybe fits well that Stefan will have the 10 and Jeffrey has the, the winning record because Jeffrey is speed and he hasn't always played the, the long game. And I think he probably is the fastest GP rider ever. He might just be the fastest rider ever any nationality in any series in terms of versatility in terms of proving you can do it on different ground, the sand, the rock, the hard pack, the different countries, South America. He's won in America as well, USGP's MN National. So if you take all that, obviously Stuart and Carmichael were amazing, but they raced in America. Could Jeffrey beat them in America? I don't know. Would you put all those guys on a world series? And you have to obviously take away injury to put Jeffrey in the World Series. But in terms of speed, I think even James Stewart, Ricky Carmichael, or Rick Johnson, Tortelli, Everts, they're going to find their answer full trying to run with Jeffrey Harlings. Yeah, he I mean, that record. Yeah, I mean, what an all time great. He's just ridiculous on a motocross bike. I mean, he's probably the fastest guy I've ever seen on a bike. Unbelievable. Especially if, if you ever see him in sand, it's just like ridiculous. But then you realize he's actually, he's obviously not known for it, but he's it's still very, very hard to beat him in the hard pack tracks too when he's when he's up to speed. Obviously this year, you know, he's missed a full season coming in with with pretty rusty, you would say, and he still won half the GPs, three out of six. And he's not even at his broadest full A game yet, which is just shows you what those other guys are up against. He's a phenomenal rider and He'd probably look back on his career and just wish he didn't have so many visits to the hospital yeah. bed because, my goodness, if he didn't, how many world titles would he have won? God knows. <laughs> and a lot of his injuries didn't even come in the races. He broke his leg on an 85. Mm -hmm. He got hurt doing a photo shoot last year. He broke his foot when he didn't crash in practice yeah. going yeah. into the 2019 season. But there's three already. That puts him on eight. He wins this one. It's nine, and he's only won seven. But... We must also say Everett's lost at least two championships due to injury himself in 2000-1999, and you could argue 1992 as a rookie when he burst his spleen on the 250. So he had his own injury issues to, to cope with. But I think Everett's, we've just talked about his legacy, isn't just the 10th title, it's the technique that riders are still putting into play, those standing up balls of the feet and all that. Still in play now, but also Jeffrey Speed, I think he's going to set a record that may never be broken. I mean, it took 14, many years, 10, nearly 20 well, years to beat Stefan's yeah. record. Stefan broke Joe Robert's record in 2000. I think that lasted from 1970 or in around there, but 50-odd GP wins. So Herlings has got his legacy secured now, and I think he deserves that, for the level he's ridden at, the speed he's brought. But I can't. I don't see who's going to beat his GP win record because he still says he's going to race for another three seasons. This season isn't even over. Well, he's already 102 wins. So I think whatever happens with championship titles, that legacy of those GP wins will signify to the next generations just how fast he was. Yeah, I mean it's going to be very, very tricky to break his GP win record. But you know, if the level drops or whatever, and somebody special comes along. And, you know, it's it, what is impressive for me is that Jeffrey has all these GP wins with the level. I mean, the level is unbelievable these days. Mm -hmm. And he beat Crowley. Like he's raced Crowley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That year was... Yeah. Whoever else it's now, actually, scary, you know? yeah. <laughs> Even at the moment, you know, he, 
you've got Renault. Well, obviously he's injured now, but before his injury, you've got Fever and Prado. These guys aren't hanging about in a motocross bike, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So for him to get these GP wins in this era is just remarkable, really. It's jaw-dropping. Um, just uh, even if somebody does break the, the, the record, it's I can't imagine another rider being around like Jeffrey Hardings again in the future. Mm-hmm. They just don't make them like him these days. You know, with the injuries he's picked up and then somehow still managed to win the GP and like you see him give him weekend. I mean, you look back to Latvia a few years ago, he got his, his already injured ankle run over and then he went out in Monomoto and then an Oss a couple of years ago when Evo Monticelli landed on him. I think he broke his shoulder, but I think he won the GP overall that day, didn't he? Uh, and then there was the one in Mexico where he had the broken leg, but he and came back to Tran nearly. I mean, <laughs> if it had been five five minutes shorter, he would have won that yeah. title. I mean, the pain that man that man can go through is just next level. Oh, don't forget, he was temporarily paralyzed a couple of years ago as well. He yeah, still came yeah. back to the sport. I mean, he's financially secure. You see, he just raced Fox Hill there. You know, he doesn't need to do that. He's raced every weekend. I think from Hawkstone the week before Hawkstone in February. So his desire to win his dedication to win and his ambition to be the greatest or at least one of the greatest is still there after all the injuries. I mean, he's winning from 15 years old, a bit like Ken Roxon, who's still racing himself. You know, you think those guys at their late 20s have maybe only been racing 10 years, 12 years, but they've been there racing the guts of 15, 15 seasons now. And I think it's important to remember that because they started so young. Yeah. Um, you know, really... Guy in his the 33 that started the 20. I think he's had a good career, 35. But the equivalent is really Herrings and Rocks, and that's where they are right now in their careers. So it was still winning for both of them. It's pretty impressive. But we'll end it there. So congratulations to Jeffrey Herlings on the win GP win record. Congratulations to Chase Saxon on his first two, 250, I was going to say, but 450 Premier Class Supercross Championship, and we we'll look forward to the outdoors now. Of course, first Supercross coming up as well. Some good names headlined by Ken Roxon there, and fingers crossed Roxon's knee will be fine for Villa Park on the 1st of July. Colt Nichols, Cole Seeley, a um, few other good names as well. Max Anthony, Dean Wilson for the British fans. We'll have that to look forward to as well. But for now, Jeffrey Hurley and Chase Sexton are making the headlines. Along with the sad state of affairs for Eli Tomac, but I think his legacy in terms of championships and an all-time greater are consolidated regardless of that heartache at the end of 2023 Supercross. So for now, Andy, all the best and uh, France this weekend. Yep, buzzing for France. Let's go. See you then.